I believe. I got a broken Pez dispenser, and, uh, and I got this old dick. Uh, if you're interested. Well, before I make a decision, what character is the Pez dispenser? Well, about that, I'm not too sure, seeing that it's broken. Uh, it's mainly just the housing unit for the Pez candies themselves. Damn, that's uh, that's really intriguing, but I'm going to have to go with the old dick, actually. I know that's, yeah, I'm going to have to go with the old dick. But you know what? Uh, since we're on the topic and all, I got one of them snap bracelets. You know, like one of those things you slap over your wrist and it snaps into a bracelet. I love those. Yeah, I got one of those. Uh, yeah, I got one of those. And uh, let's see here. Let me look. Uh, I have an instruction manual for an old... Hoover vacuum from the 50s. Hmm. It's a great stocking stuffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got an ice cube tray. Oh, and I just found this old dick if you're looking for another option. Thank you for the additional option. It is appreciated. And, uh, well, I suppose I'll take that instruction manual for the vacuum cleaner. Seeing that it's my niece's birthday party, you know, it's coming up and all. Uh, you know, I'll wrap it up nicely, put a bow on it and everything. Okay, I can grab you that. Uh you know, like right after the show, it's actually being used as a sort of floor mat in my car. But my car is parked across the street in the car park. Ah, well, you know, that that shouldn't be a problem at all, and I appreciate it. In fact, I can barely contain myself with all the excitement I have over the prospect of having found myself in such a position. Oh, please, please. The pleasure is seriously all mine. I can assure you of that. Thank you again for the assurance, and it certainly makes me feel an almost imperceptible degree better than I was previously. Also, if you'd like to know, I also have a small opened box of awful staples and half of a glue stick, and uh, I have one of those framed photographs of the 23rd president of the United States, that is uh, Benjamin Harrison, that you could put up there on your fireplace mantle or, uh, you know, perhaps uh, right there on your nightstand. And uh, I had this old dick. So uh, what do you have? Dang, well, that is really tempting. Uh, Benjamin Harrison, you know, he just happens to be my all-time favorite president of the United States. I mean, I like them all. What can I say? But Benjamin Harrison, in a frame, no less. Uh, boy, that's a toss-up. But uh, I'm going to have to stick with kind of what I know. And I'm going to go with the old dick. Well, sir, the old dick is yours. I suppose, in the spirit of giving, I can offer you a copy of Pacific Vortex by Clive Cussler, but it is missing the first 36 pages and the last 12, but everything, and I do mean everything in between, it's just a great read, very exhilarating, and I got one of them pool noodles, it's yellow, in case you wanted to know. It's in very bad shape, in case you also wanted to know that. But I'm sure what's left of it will float. And that's the only thing that fucking matters anyway. And speaking of fine, I have about a sandwich bag's worth or so of a mixture of what can only be described by modern science as coffee grounds and cat litter, which pretty much you can use for just about anything. Oh, and uh, don't let me forget, I also have this thing over here. It's kind of old, but you know, it's laying around. I'm trying to get rid of it. If you'd like that, it's an old dick. This is a difficult decision with all those equally desirable options. I know what you mean, pal. More than you do, buddy. More than you do. Well, you know, uh, I think... Uh... Hey, 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 you literally have one second before the office off the table, buddy. Wait, 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 wait. all right, all right, all right. I'll take what's left of the Clive Cussler book. You... Clive Cussler? I mean, you sure, you sure you don't want this old dick? Ah, well, you know, honestly... I don't have a need for this old dick for the time being, but the book sounds like a pretty exciting time, you know, the way you put it, despite missing a lot of its pages. 
Oh my God, is that really going to be our intro? <laughs> well, you know, I don't really have a say in any of that, but I'm going to assume that it will be the intro, yes. All right, well, it's either an all-time low or an all-time high, depending <laughs> on uh, who you ask. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Wayne Dale. Thank you, Wayne Dale. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the episode. Très portrait. Oh, say can you see? Nice. So, yeah. What do you got? Hired out Hired out for that one. What do you got for us? So, a couple of weeks ago, we brought to you a story in the 3 for 3 about Jacob Crimmy Appleby, who, along with Marius Theodore Gustafson, were both arrested for being part of a group dedicated to extreme body modification, where they perform amputations on each other. Willingly, that is. That case has been dubbed the Eunuch Maker case, if anyone is interested in that. But now, I present to you a brand new story, Hot Off the Presses, which was published Tuesday, May 2nd of this year, 2023, coming to us from CBS Austin News. A woman from Arkansas was indicted in the alleged $11,000 sale of over 20 boxes of stolen body parts, allegedly stolen, from medical school cadavers to a Pennsylvania man. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes. So this indictment was unsealed on Friday in federal court in Little Rock. This woman's name is Candace Chapman Scott, and she's 36, and she's a former mortuary worker, so she knows her way around the body. Former. Yeah. Former because of this incident, oh, I believe. Oh, yes, yes. They didn't want her to work in that line of work anymore with access to bodies, since she's accused of stealing said bodies. So apparently she met a man through a Facebook group called Oddities, and they went on to have a series of transactions where he paid over $11,000 for fetuses, brains, hearts, lungs, genitalia, large pieces of skin, as well as other unspecified body parts. Do we have information on what this guy's using these body parts for? Um, no, it doesn't say anything about the use. It just says that there was dialogue between the two and there's plenty of statements basically proving that they he knew fully what he was getting. He may not have known where they were from, but he knew what he was getting and he knew what he was paying for. There were 16 separate PayPal transfers. You'd think if you didn't know, Man. after you got the first one, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, this isn't what I wanted. Yeah. Not have another 16 different transfers. It took 16, like, ah, I don't know about this. Uh, I don't know about this Do one, another man. one. Mm, still on the fence. So, yeah. Well, there's many people, of course, that are grateful for uh, federal authorities um, charging Scott for this crime. And uh, it, it just really sucks, you know, on a personal note for people that decide to donate their bodies to science for medical research because that's the type of stuff that was stolen and then sold for monetary gain by a private individual. It makes you think twice about marking that little spot on the back of your license, huh? Yep. I actually do not have that on mine. I purposely chose not to. Well, I actually had a unique option on the back of mine to make me a cyborg. Nice, so, dude. 
if I ever get in an accident, you're going to meet Robo Scott. Robo Scott. Well, here's the thing. Even though I chose not to be an organ donor, does not mean that they're not going to take my organs. <laughs> I'm going to fucking take your organs, bro. <laughs> Cyborg Scott is going to take my organs. I am here. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> Which is a good segue into our next story from AP News, of course, our favorite home of odd news. In New York City... The city council has hired a former educator to be the city's chief rat mitigator. Rat mitigator, huh? Yes, yes. Apparently, they posted an ad um, seeking applicants who were not only bloodthirsty, but possessed killer instincts and could also commit to the wholesale slaughter of rats. And those are quotes directly from the article. Do you think oh you would uh, apply for a job with that posting? I don't know about that. That's scary. That's a... Uh... Whoever's applying for that position, I think, has uh, some psychological issues to to confront. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true that the uh, the lady seemed very zealous uh, to to do the job. She's quoted as saying, "You'll be seeing a lot of me and a lot less rats." She vowed. Oh wow! So I guess we'll... she's on a a mission. Yep, she is on a mission against rats, apparently. And I understand it's New York, right? There's tons of people, there's tons of trash, there's lots of rats, um, there's probably twice as many rats as there are people, but, I mean, this is a little scary. Can you really put a stop to a rat problem in a city? I guess we're going to find out. The city of New York seems to think so. The sewer systems alone, man. Holy crap. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So we'll keep an eye on that story, and we'll get back to you and see how the the rat mitigator is coming along. I mean... What's the problem with rats anyway? It's not like they've ever had anything bad against them throughout history. I can tell you that personally, I've never had a bad interaction with a rat, and I've never met a rat that I didn't like. Wait a minute. On to our third story. (laughs) (laughs) On to our third story, also from AP News, and this one was posted on May 5th, 2023. Apparently, Coop, a man in Germany who you may well know... Oh, yeah? ...was rescued from the woods after a sex game... Winter Rye. Sounds like I know this man. Sounds like somebody you would be in cahoots with. (laughs) Well, apparently German police say a 51-year-old man was left tied up in the woods when a sex game went sideways, and he was luckily rescued by a passing cyclist and a hunter who heard his screams for help. The man reportedly was discovered fully dressed but tied up with ropes, and he also had pantyhose over his head, and he was atop a deer hunting platform near the town of Buchleberg, late Wednesday. All right. All right. Yeah, this sounds great. Keep going. Yeah, so the police got a statement from the man. He said that he was tied up by a woman, but apparently she received a phone call in the middle of their shenaniganry, and she just suddenly left the woods, just left him in a helpless state. Hmm. Um, the old man, well, I call him old, but he was 51. He had a box cutter on him, in his quote, for such situations, but he underestimated the skill that the woman tied him up with, so he was unable to reach for his knife. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Her bondage skills were way too good for him. They were way too good. He met his match. Um, police have opened an ongoing investigation into the case because technically it is a failure to render assistance and also possible deprivation of liberty. 
Well, at least he's all right. For the record, I do not know who this man is. <laughs> or this woman. Well, I guess we'll see when all the information comes out. Don't, yeah, don't I guess... let me catch you in the suspect list. <laughs> I guess you don't have any names yet. Nope, there's no name. Where were you on on Wednesday? <laughs> hmm. On May 5th, I guess uh, we'll keep that a secret. All right. Well, on that note, that will end our Trey Portrait. Awesome, man. Always golden nuggets as usual. Yep. Thank you. Yes, sir. No problem. We'll be back with another Trey Portrait a week from today. All right. And on we move. Ohayu, konnichiwa, kanbanwa, oyasumi, wherever you are. Today, we are going to slide into our Komodos and slip into our Geta, and then unceremoniously somersault on over to Siyama, Japan, which is in the Okayama Prefecture, and sits next to the Chugoku Mountains, which separated from the Titori Prefecture just to the north. It is the largest city in the northern area of the prefecture, and has right around 100,000 people, give or take, that live within 45,653 households. That's a pretty dense little area in that part of the prefecture there. That's a good bit of people's all squidged in, if you will. Yeah, and they're definitely keeping track of the number of households, that's for sure. Yeah, they're keeping a close eye on that, apparently. The main tourist attraction in Siyama is the castle, which holds the same name. And it wasn't always Siyama Castle. Before that, it was Kakuzen Castle. And right around the year 1440, Yamana Noriyukiyo of the Yamana clan had ordered the construction of Kakuzen at Suru Mountain. Now, I want to apologize for all these names. This is going to be really difficult. Through the many, many years of its existence, it became the home to a handful of other clans. Each added more and more to the castle. Soon, the castle would be in disrepair, and by 1616, a new castle was basically built over the ruins. This new castle had five stories and built with a typical Tenshu style of architecture. And Tenshu is the classic architecture you see in many of the old temples and other castles of Japan. And it also had 77 Yagura turrets, which is which was more than any other notable castle. And that would be one more to be exact. And these are essentially towers where guards or warriors would be stationed. The Yoshi River actually floats through the southern part of the castle grounds, and the Ida River flows along the western walls. Unfortunately, by the 1860s, most of the buildings were in total disrepair, and in 1873, all of the buildings except for one gate and the main castle were torn down. The area then became known by its old name, Kakuzen, and would become Kakuzen Park. There have been a few reconstructions since that time, and in 2006, Tsuyama Castle was listed as one of the top 100 castles in Japan by the Japan Castle Foundation. And when I read that, I was like, top 100 castles? How many fucking castles are in Japan? You know, so I did some incredible research and found that it is thought that there were at least 5,000 castles at one point in Japan. But today, there are more than 100 castles remaining, according to wikivoyage.com. So, you know, that's constructive. Then I checked Wikipedia, and again, more than 100 castles. Then I came upon Encyclopedia of Japan, and they say that there are about 25,000 castles in Japan, including ruins and reconstructions. Then, allaboutjapan.com says that there are over 300 castles, so I concluded that there are more than 100 castles in Japan. Anyway, in 1900, over 5,000 Sakura trees were planted. These would be the beautiful cherry blossoms, and every year from April 1st to the 15th, the Siyama Cherry Blossom Festival is held. But as you may know, 
maybe not if you're new here, but the Paranautica podcast covers the horrors and terror of this planet. Oh, imagine that. We do not necessarily cover the overlooked beauty that is all around us. That's true. We have a tendency to focus on the grim, the horrific, the macabre, and not necessarily the roses or the flowers or the birds and the bees. Indeed. Although we do uh, touch on some aspects of all those. But, you know, I'm not sure if the podcast would be interesting if our approach in our shows remained, you know, quite the same in terms of the editing and all of that. But the topics were about, like, I don't know, the differences between certain bike horns (laughs) or, like, different styles of carpet from the 70s. Oh, I could tell you all about different carpet from the 70s, my guy. (laughs) But I guess we'll let the listeners decide what style they like the best. And we're going to keep doing what we do. I can tell you that with 100% confidence. Uh, Now, all right, before we hop on our dragons and stroke our Fu Manchus as we stoically gaze at the blazing sun, Scott, you know that I usually pester you with a random question that pertains to the subject we cover in each episode, right? I mean, not every time, but usually. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It scares the shit out of me, in fact, every time, because, well, for one, you instantly put me in the spotlight, and I'm never prepared, and I'm usually busy doing something else. Nah, that's not true at all. I apologize. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Sure. Okay. Well, here's your question. Do you think video games can lead people to commit violent crimes? That, Coop, is probably the hardest question you've ever asked me, made harder by the fact that I was doing something else. (laughs) Just kidding. I mean, there are so many different aspects in play there, okay? So are we talking Tetris? Are we talking Pong? Well, neither of those, all right? All right, we're talking violent video games. So do violent video games have a propensity to cause people to commit violent crimes? I suppose there are still many factors at work on what goes into that equation. For example, what are they doing other than video gaming? Are they social? Do they have friends? Are they brought up in a system that emphasizes right and wrong, or at least the existence of right and wrong? Are they self-isolating because they just don't like people in general? Um, which, you know, that happens a lot for many different reasons. Some people don't fit in with any group. You know, they don't really click up well when they're going through that stage of learning to be social. Or maybe there's just some psychological issues which prevent them from encountering the world in a, in a you know, a more classical way. Um, I mean, I don't want to say this, but for lack of better words, you know, maybe they're not, quote, normal or just, you know, they don't fit in. So, I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think everyone has met someone like that in school at some point. Someone that, I don't know, just they're just off. Like they have no desire to be around anyone else or let alone talk to anyone else. Sure. Yeah. Right. So besides those things, maybe they're, you know, in addition, if they have that violent tendency, maybe they're abusing some sort of drug that has kind of taking them out of reality. So you start, you know, so you start like blending reality and and uh fantasy and then shit, then there are different aspects about that part, you know, like in terms of reality. I think it's safe to say that if you literally isolate yourself and do nothing but play violent video games and then you get lost in your own psyche and that whole inner world with the subliminal violence being absorbed into the frontal lobe or prefrontal cortex as well as the hippocampus, which are all critical areas of the brain that regulate decision-making and play an integral role <gasps> in our moral behavior and allow us to either make emotionally driven decisions or allow us to sort of, you know, step back and think about the pros and fucking cons of each major decision that we make. I think it's reasonable to theorize that by doing that, isolating and playing violent video games, you could certainly lead someone who is perhaps 
already predisposed to such violent behavior. Perfectly done. Yeah, yeah. And then to go off of what you're saying about the different aspects involved, you know, the old being predisposed, that's an important aspect. Because you're saying that certain people may have a predisposition to have violent behavior due to carrying a certain gene passed through their family line, you know, through DNA. I am exactly saying that. And the gene that these white coats have seemed to isolate is the MAOA gene. In some studies, they've said that this gene is directly linked to violent behavior and is passed down through genetics. But again, I bring up other aspects, such as it's sort of a mode of expression for some to become angry and use violence, as well as a way to release all these pent-up emotions and frustrations. I mean, we've seen that since time immortal. Absolutely. And some people use violence as a means to manipulate and control others. For some, violence is a learned behavior. It's just what was demonstrated to them their whole lives and how they were taught to take care of their frustrations or talk to solve problems. And if they were in such an environment where that's how they were taught, um, that's how they saw other people handle their problems. They saw, well, it's working for them. They're getting what they want. So I'm just going to do that. On top of that, there's that double-edged sword, Retaliation. Oh, yes. Retaliation, with a capital R. And I'm going to have to stop you right there, Scott, because you have just touched on a major point in the story. Retaliation. With a capital R. Fuck yeah, dude. Fucking fuck yeah, bro. So with that said, the city of Tsuyama is also the location of the deadliest shooting by a single gunman in Japanese history. And, well, it's said to be the deadliest shooting by a single gunman, but not all of the victims were shot. Uh, as some were stabbed, some were chopped and sliced. So I'm not sure how all of that worked. But I bring up the video game scenario because this this story we're going to talk about today happened far beyond video game age. And so the antagonist of today's episode is a 21-year-old named Masubo Toy. And the date is May 21st, 1938. Far beyond video games. Whoa. Yeah, 1938. That's a shocker to me. That, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know people have been predisposed to violent tendencies since people were people. But 1938, I, I like this. Classical. Historical. I wonder if there's like violence in playing checkers or chess. There's got to be because of like, the competitive nature, right? I'm sure when those games first came out and it was like a true test and battles were won and lost on the chessboard... I bet people were driven to fighting, at the very least, by losing a game of chess. Taunting? Woof! Yeah. Best, Yikes, Best yeah. watch your ass, bro. <laughs> so the exact location of the massacre actually took place in a rural village named Kamo, which is situated very close to Tsuyama. And for those unaware, modern gun regulations in Japan were first adopted under the Firearm and Sword Possession Control Law in 1958, which is also the year hula hoops became a craze in the U.S., and that law is still in effect today, but has had many revisions over the years. And the important part of it states that, quote, no one shall possess a firearm or firearms or a sword or swords, end quote. There are a few exceptions to this, of course, such as if you're a legitimate hunter or use a firearm for sport or industrial purposes. But still, this is very, very heavily regulated. I appreciate that it's heavily regulated, but I'm also curious what using a firearm for industrial purposes looks like. Yeah, good point. And can I apply for that job tomorrow? Purpose, industrial purposes. Yeah, industrial purposes. Hey, man, this shotgun's for industrial purposes, all right? This is a company gun. <laughs> yeah, this is a company gun. <laughs> 
This is a company gun, bro. And so all gun licensed applicants, they go through a stringent background check, a mental health evaluation, and need to take a written test and a shooting range test, along with some other steps to ensure proper ownership, such as the proper maintenance of the uh, weapon. And anyone who obtains a license also needs to renew it every three years. Handguns and rifles are entirely prohibited. Those who do possess a firearm may only possess shotguns and air guns. It is commonly believed that because of the very tight control of firearms, there aren't a whole lot of gun-related crimes happening in Japan. But some researchers point to research, which tends to show that it is more likely due to the Japanese culture, that being how the people are very disciplined, formal, and seem to be bound by traditions and rituals. I mean, I'm sure their gun control laws have a teeny bit to do with it, but what do I know about the Japanese way of life? I mean, the truth is, Americans on the whole, are unbound, out there, wild, free. And we have gun laws, too, and yet people are killing each other with guns constantly, bro. Daily basis. All the time. All the time. So, I don't know. Maybe it is a societal thing. Maybe it's a gene thing. Maybe it's both. It's got a mix of everything, man. But their culture is based on respect and appreciation for one another. So that has a lot to do with it, and especially their elders, which is the exact opposite of what the United States culture is based on. Oh, yeah. The, our culture is based on lies and deceit and sex and cocaine. Pretty much. Yeah. But, you know, the Japanese police very rarely ever use their firearms and actually keep them locked up in cases. Meanwhile, in the United States, police officers are mandated by law to carry their firearms and are more than happy to use them. Oh, man, just itching to use that finger and get paid. Leave, homie. Yeah, man, and anytime an officer ever fires a weapon while on duty, there are supposed to be all sorts of records made about it, including statements and all that shit, no matter what the situation, you know, even if the gun, quote unquote, accidentally fires, which does happen. Right, right, you know, like when they're showing off their handgun to a group of interested kids on the street. Hey, cool, that's a cool cop, that's a cool gun, can I hold it? Can I nah, see it? I can't let you hold it. That's against the department's policies and procedures. Lose my job, my truck, my wife, my house, my kids, my cat, uh, my slippers, and everything else, kid. Ah oh, man, I knew you were a lame cop. The other cops always let me see theirs all the time. Ah uh, nah, kid, hey, you know, look. <laughs> I'm a cool cop. Check it out here, I'll prove it. Yeah, look, 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 see here, check it out, here. I'll even turn off the safety, kids, see? See that? I'm cool. Oh, wow. See, I told you, I'm cool. Yeah, not as cool as the other cops, though. What? Oh, yeah? All right, see those garbage cans over there? Go ahead and shoot those. Empty the clip, kid. Not as cool, huh? Not as cool. Oh, hey, where you going? Hey, hey, buddy, could you hurry it up with the uh, the mustard on my dog? Those kids just took off with my side piece. Uh, you're going to have to hold on a minute. i got to run around the corner and get some more of this uh, mustard sauce. See that? I'm cool. I'm cool. Yeah. 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 I'm cool. Man, I wonder if he still has his job as a cop. 
Yeah, I'm willing to bet that they probably gave him an award for most distinguished um, <laughs> employee of the month, you know? <laughs> and they probably uh, they likely. probably gave him a, a position as outreach liaison to the public schools. That's probably what happened. And now this does not mean the Japanese citizens do not carry or possess firearms illegally. The Japanese gangs largely use handguns in the committing of their various offenses. And there is this idea that the Yakuza only really use old Walter P-38s and out-of-production Soviet-era Takarev pistols from the 1930s because they are very inexpensive. Well, I could see that, you know. Crime syndicate worth millions. You know, they want to save some money. They didn't get to those millions by spending frivolously. It's true, yeah. And just a little bit about the Yakuza while we are on them, because I found some interesting stuff. So there are numerous families of Yakuza, right? And currently the Yamaguchi-Gumi family is the largest with about 8,200 members. And a man named Kenichi Shinoda is said to be the most feared of that family. And, by the way, families doesn't necessarily mean that they're all blood-related. Right. And apparently any foreigner can technically join a Yakuza family if that family wants to accept them. But according to theconversation.com, a foreigner also known as a Gaijin, will immediately be welcomed into a Yakuza family. They even rise through the ranks much faster and become key members with important responsibilities. They even become the main boss's bodyguard, according to theconversation.com. That's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know why that would be. Like, what do you think the reason for that is? Dude, I have no idea. Uh, seriously, though, think about this, all right? A generic white American. A man, right? You know, a six-foot-tall dude, around 170 pounds. Talk about sticking out like a sore thumb. You're basically a fucking target. Yeah, imagine busting up into some bar, and you're, like, there to carry out a hit, and, like, who are they going to shoot at? They're going to take out the tall white dude first. They're only going to look at you. They're only going to see you. Yeah, they're going to be like, look at that stretch, Armstrong. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing that the Yakuza don't just go around attacking civilians like it's the Purge, they strictly go after rival Yakuza families. But this isn't to say that they don't or haven't attacked civilians because they have, although most of the time it is frowned upon by the big boss, and you know who knows what happens behind those closed doors. But now think about this: you're the six foot tall, hundred seventy pound dude, all the you know around all these relatively smaller dudes, just genetically, and you know if these rival Yakuza or after the boss that you're protecting. Well, I don't think you'd be the most effective bodyguard since you're basically waving your arms around like, hey, yeah, right here, over here, look, look over here, yeah, you see me? You see him? You see yeah, you see us both, yeah, yeah, come on, come over here, come get him. Yeah, I mean, what a quick way to identify if, like, everybody knows that the white dude is the main boss's bodyguard. You just look for the white dude in the sea of people, and you're like, oh, there's the main boss, he's right over there. Now check this out. Kenichi Shinoda, the most feared Yakuza, He's 81 years young right now. Wow. I mean, I could see that. You know, it's all the wisdom, all the combined. Like, they respect him because he's been around for so long. Like, he passes down the tradition of the way the Yakuza did it years and years ago. I, I could see it. And he also did uh, 13 years in prison in the 1970s for murdering a rival Yakuza with a katana. And in 2005, he was sentenced to six more years for gun possession, even though he didn't even have the gun. It was one of his bodyguards. You know, but he was still convicted for conspiring with the bodyguard. Jeez, they just went right for it and they threw him in. They weren't like, oh, this guy, we can't touch him. 
They just, they just threw him all, locked him up. That's crazy. But then in 2012, this is stupid. The Obama administration imposed sanctions on him as the leader of the Yamaguchi Gumi. And those sanctions also targeted the Brothers Circle, which is an organized crime group in Russia, uh, the Camorra in Italy, who is a mafia-style family, and the Los Zetas down there in Mexico. Now, are you going to put sanctions on these people? Yeah, it doesn't sound like economic sanctions are the way to get through to gangs. Because if you think about it, a lot of gangs flourish when you put the squeeze on legitimate relations from country to country. Because then everything becomes black market or, you know, you just have that much more ability to have a side market going on with things that can't be coming in, you know. So you're just going to increase below board gang activity. Unless that was the whole you know, subplot. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, the Yakuza has been going hard since like, I don't know, the early 1600s apparently. Oh yeah, they've been around for a long time. And it's said, however, that their numbers are steadily dwindling due to men not really seeing it as a dynamic career choice. Yeah, and things are getting increasingly Western over there as well. And True. people are like, I'm going to be a salary man. True. So what do they do now anyways, the Yakuza? Because everything I've read and everything I know tells me that they're a gang, and they control businesses, they do a lot of loan sharking, they invest in sports, entertainment, all with the purposes of making money. Yeah, 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 and they are involved with drugs, smuggling, pornography as well, and most likely some other activities, maybe even paid assassins, um, and might have their hand in the government in some way or another. But back to the handguns. In 1985, there were just over 200 crimes involving handguns, the most than any other year. And in 2021, there were 10 shootings in which one person was killed and four others wounded. Eight of those 10 were gangster related. Jeez, yeah. So they're out there visible. They're not like the kind of group that tries to hide away. They're like out there doing shit. They're out there doing their thing, making moves. I don't know. I think they they really uh, do a lot of shakeups. You know what I mean? Like go to businesses. Like, in, like intimidation yeah. type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And say we'll protect the whole, the whole, you know. Shake up the business. We'll, you'll, you pay us money, we'll protect you type thing. I could see it. And the former prime minister of Japan and a serving member of the House of Representatives, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated with a homemade handgun on July 8th, 2022, while giving a speech at a political event in Nara City, Japan. Whoa, that's some con air shit, man. Freaking toilet paper roll in a spring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Well, this one was a bit more sophisticated. So the suspect was Tetsuya Yamagami, and he was arrested immediately after the shooting on the spot. In the video, you see Shinzo speaking on a small stage about two feet off the ground, and the stage is set up directly next to an active street, which is actually behind Shinzo. And all of his bodyguards, of which there are like six, they're all standing mostly right behind him. But a couple are like on the sides, but they're all looking forward toward the crowd. Not one of them is looking behind them. And you can't see it as the camera is fixed, but Tetsuya Yamagami walks up from behind and fires one round from his homemade gun um, before Shinzo and everyone else looks behind them, right? And then another shot rings out as Shinzo turns and it hits him in the chest. And he clutches his chest and turns away from the shooter and kneels down before the footage ends. And the bodyguards would then run over and tackle Tetsuya and place him under arrest. Analysts would later say that the weapon he made, it could have been made by anybody with even the most cursory understanding of how a gun actually operates. They said it would have taken no more than two days to build and no less than 12 hours. 
and it measured 15.5 inches by 7.9 inches or 40 by 20 centimeters. Tetsuya Yamagami, 42 years old as of 2023, said that he, he bought all the parts, instructions, and how to build it, as well as the gunpowder, online. And the authorities gathered 10 cardboard boxes of materials similar to those used in the manufacture of the weapon, as well as five other homemade guns from his house. And he is obviously facing some very serious consequences and was formally charged for the assassination in January of this year, 2023. Whoa, that's recent. Very. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, and interestingly, Shinzo's grandfather was severely injured in an assassination attempt when he was prime minister by being stabbed. Whoa. Coincidence? I don't think so. Well, let's get back to Matsuo Toy. Wait, who? The guy we're talking about today, Matsuo Toy. Oh, well, it's been so long since you mentioned his name, and you've given us so much information since then. I thought we were just going to do an episode on Japan in general. Well, Scott, you need to add some delicate spice to the borscht, or else you're just having some boiled beets for dinner, and that can beat quite boring. Ugh. Already with the dad jokes, we haven't been going for even an hour yet. I gotta say this over time. And that can beat quite boring. I fucking hate you. All right, let's get weird. Mitsuo Toy was born on the 5th of March in 1917 to reportedly well-off parents in the Okayama Prefecture. I couldn't find any information on what they did for a living, but they would both die from tuberculosis when Mitsuo was only a baby. He also had a sister, and the two of them would be brought up by one of their grandmothers. He was said to be an outgoing child and got on well with the other children, but as he got older, he would become more and more withdrawn. Due to the loss of their parents, Matsuo and his sister developed a very close relationship. Nothing sexual as far as historians can tell, but they had that special bond that kids whose parents have not died don't have. It'd be interesting to have kind of been a fly on the wall for that dynamic of siblings because, yeah, I'm sure it does bring siblings closer than normal, but it sounds like it was just trauma bond type thing, yeah. yep. you know, both parents out of the picture and they're still young people. Matsuo did have sexual relations with the local women, although he never had an official girlfriend or one that lasted long enough to be considered official. And later he would be described as being what we refer in today's nomenclature as hypersexual. His sister, however, had been seeing a man for an indeterminable amount of time and had planned to marry him. When the time came, she would marry this man and leave home in 1934. This was the tipping point for Matsuo, and he became a hikikomori, meaning that he became severely socially withdrawn. I'd say this is akin to a mixture of major depressive disorder and agoraphobia. You know, these are people who cannot do anything outside of their house, you know, no socialization. It must not have been all that bad for him because it did not stop him from taking part in the ancient Japanese custom of yobai. And I sense there are a lot of people just pitching sign language at me at high speeds in excess of 96 miles per hour asking, well, what the fuck is Yobai? Yeah, well, we are all clamoring about it. So tell us, what is Yobai? Yobai is an ancient Japanese custom that is practiced by young men and women. The purpose is for them to discover the beauty of sex, to figure it all out, you know, how it all works. Uh, do I put it in the one that smells bad? Or the one that smells worse, but is so much more appealing to look at. Hmm. I'll just put it in the one that smells bad. Whoa! Whoa! Amaterasu! Oh, yeah. It feels so 
gritty, like, like it's full of little pieces of gravel. Whoa! Oh! Yikes, I don't know what that guy's been doing to learn about his sexual health, but looks like he's got to change it up. Yeah, so Yobai is also called night crawling, and the man would sneak into the woman's bedroom at night and let her know, like, Hey, baby, I come here to mate with you, and then, what do you say, baby? Maybe make us some peanut butter and a jelly sandwiches we could eat with a glass of milk afterward with two straws. What do you say, baby? Man, well, you know she is not turning down that offer. Oh, how could you? Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with a two-strawed glass of milk? <laughs> Shit, yeah. Come on in. Yeah, I'll stick it in the gravel. If the, if the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. If the woman gave her consent, then they would do some awkward, very basic sex, and then when they were done, they would just lay there in silence until the man would leave in the morning. And the parents... Well, they knew it happened, but just pretended that it didn't. And the practice of yobai was very normal, and it was the method most used to find a spouse. And it was once common all over Japan for quite some time, and even up until the 20th century. Can you imagine, like, that last guy that's still doing it after it's died out? It's just, like, <laughs> not a thing anymore, and, yeah. you know, he's just like, hey, I'm going to go yobai tonight, and his guy friend's like, Psh, come on, man, yobai is for pussies. Like he's like the girl just sees it coming a mile away. She's like, "What well, are you trying to yo by me?" Yeah, right. Like, it ain't happening. It ain't happening, buddy. I want. I wonder how that worked out. Like the last guy that that tried to do it. Yeah, are you trying to yo by me? Am I being yo bied right now? God, all he wanted to do was yo by yo by <laughs> hashtag yo by. Matsuo would practice the art of night stalking or yo by, and sometimes get lucky, but sometimes not. Then came his tuberculosis diagnosis in 1937. Oh, Yeah, and and now, you know, no woman wanted to be around him at all. And in his mind, the woman didn't like him because of his hypersexuality. It wasn't the TB. Due to this mix of his sister marrying and leaving, and him being diagnosed with TB, and being unable to satisfy his sexual urges, he really started to feel isolated, lonely, and ridiculed by the whole village because of that TB diagnosis. Now, tuberculosis was essentially a deadly disease back then, and the woman didn't want to be around him, naturally. But he took that as him being excommunicated, snubbed, shunned, and he didn't like that one bit. Well, shit, yeah, I bet it was fucking terrible. It got out, obviously, that he had TB, and the doctor must have told someone that told someone, and pretty the whole town's like, get away from him, he's got tuberculosis. Like, damn, bro, I'd be pissed too. It was during this time that Masuo would take an increasing interest in the story of Sada Abe. And now we need to introduce Sada Abe into this picture. Sada Abe was born on May 28, 1905, 12 years Matsuo Sr. in Tokyo, Japan. As a teenager, Sada was encouraged by her mother to be free-spirited and independent. And while being free-spirited and independent, she would be taken advantage of by a peer-aged acquaintance and, and raped. And there was an investigation conducted... And her parents supported her completely, but Sada had changed dramatically. Her behavior was uncontrollable and therefore unacceptable. Therefore, she needed to straighten up her act, so her dad sold her off to a geisha house in Yokohama. Sold her? Her dad sold her to a geisha house? Wow. Okay. That's uh, that's pretty. That's tough love right there. You gotta straighten your act up. Now, Sada herself said that it was punishment, but her sister said Sada was willing to go. And we should note here that back in the day... Being an accomplished geisha was a mark of distinction for Japanese women. Now, many women 
uh, they would choose to pursue becoming a geisha simply because of the lifestyle it afforded in what could be an otherwise boring life. But her career was short-lived after she caught syphilis from a client, and it was at that point she decided she'd have to go into licensed prostitution. And after some time doing this, she realized that there were too many problems that came with that. So she turned to the illegal form of prostitution, which apparently had less problems. Yep, whenever they come in and try to regulate something, it just makes more problems. Her parents would die sometime in the 1930s, and it's said that she became a bit unrestrained, went a little cuckoo. Well, it's kind of expected when you've got syphilis, right? It's just, isn't it progressive? I think so, because, well, we know syphilis can really fuck your brain up, right? And that it doesn't, it doesn't always happen, but if it does get to that point, it becomes what's called neurosyphilis, which usually happens between 10 to 20 years from first contracting it. And there are actually five different types, but only a few of these can cause serious issues with your sanity if left untreated. And yes, we do have medications to treat syphilis, penicillin and ceftriaxone, but the outcomes of treatments are different for everyone. So you never really know how you'll react to those treatments. But anyway, while she was working in a brothel illegally in 1934, she was pretty much given the opportunity to become a mistress of a well-connected friend of the owner whose brothel it was. So it, it worked in her favor. And after that, she had a line of lovers as she exited the prostitution world. And this is when she became an apprentice in a restaurant in 1936. And it is here that she met Kachizu Ishida. Now, he was the husband of the owner of the restaurant. The two of them would find each other incredibly sexually attractive and would begin a relationship that would only end in headlines. Sada would say of Kachizo, I've never met such a sexy man. And they would often spend days constantly fucking in hotel rooms. The sex was insatiable and Sada was beyond herself with pleasure. And Kachizo, he was always asking for more. Sada felt herself falling in love with the man, something she'd never really felt before. But she was unhappy with the fact that, well, she was only his mistress, as he was already married. But Sada wanted to marry him. She wanted him all to herself. They always do, Coop. Yeah. They always do. Man. And because Kachizo was already married, he had a life to live with his wife. Not being able to see or talk to him for short periods of time started to really get to Sada. Now this caused Sada to grow morose, just all torn up. And what happens when people get all torn up, Scott? Well, they get Andre'd. Coop, I'm assuming. That's right. They get Andre'd, which means to get all torn up as well. Now, I don't mean to make this confusing, so to get all torn up can mean to either be sad or depressed or whatever. But it can also mean to get absolutely cabbaged or trousered, if you will. Oh yeah, get all pished and sozzled. Side note, did you know that Andre the Giant drank 119 12-ounce beers in six hours? Ooh, jeez. 119 12-ounce beers in six hours. That's insane. That's one beer every three minutes for six hours. Could you do that? Hell no, I'd probably fucking die. Probably, man. So he passed out, Andre did, in a hotel room or in a hotel lobby and could not be moved. But that's nothing. Another time, he was uh, with a few of his wrestling friends, and Andre was a bit pissed off at something and ended up drinking 156 beers, or 14.6 gallons of beer in one evening. Man, that is cr that's almost three five-gallon buckets worth. You know, if you picture a five-gallon bucket and how much that holds. Oh, my God. Just going through all that beer in like a short night, you know? The dude's big, but holy Whew. crap. That's a lot of fucking beer. 
Too much. It's a lot of pissing, too. That's so much. Yeah, he spent all night drinking and in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, 50% in the bathroom, 50% drinking. Yeah. No doubt. So anyway, <laughs> Sada was getting all andre and she recalled watching a play once where a geisha threatened her lover with a knife. And that sounded like a really great idea at that point. So Sada went and bought a nice kitchen knife for sorts and held on to it for her next fuck fest with Kachizo. And during that fuck fest in a hotel room, two days into it to be exact, she started to strangle him. Now, he found that to be sexually exhilarating. And during one climatic scene, she took the knife and placed the tip of it at the base of his berries, threatening to cut the babies off if he went back to his wife. Now, he reportedly enjoyed the sensations he got from that potential danger associated with a sharp blade on your very, very sensitive and vulnerable genitals. From what we know of this is told by Sada, and this is apparently what happened next. She said that Kachizo jokingly told her to strangle him again, but not to stop, because it hurt him when she stopped. But Sada couldn't control herself and continued to strangle him well past a chance of recovery. And on the morning of May 18th, 1936, Kachizo was dead. Upon realizing that he was dead, Sada would say that she had such a sense of clarity. She would later tell police, After I had killed Ishida, I felt totally at ease as though a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders, and I felt a sense of clarity. She's a poet. Yeah, she really had a way with words and strangulation. And strangulation and something else, too. So after that, she took the knife and cut Kachizo's twig and berries off oh. and carefully wrapped them in a newspaper or magazine oh. cover. Oh, whoa. Once that was taken care of, she took Kachizo's blood, and on one of his thighs, she wrote, We, Sada, and Ashida are alone. Then she carved her name into one of his arms with the knife. And the final thing was to put on his underwear, and then she left the hotel by 8 a.m. with the cock and balls in hand. Kachizo's body would be found by the maid not long after, and a search would ensue for Sada Abe. From there, she would do some casual shopping around Tokyo and would even go to a movie. And when she was getting tired, she decided to check into a hotel using a fake name. She spent the rest of the day writing farewell letters to family and friends because it was her intention to commit suicide by jumping off some cliffs on a mountain by the end of that week. Oh, man. That'd be a crazy planner to look at. You know, Tuesday, buy groceries. Thursday, pay the electric bill. Friday, <laughs> jump off a bridge. Right, and you actually have this all written down on your calendar, too. Yeah, spooky. While she was lying on the bed thinking a myriad of thoughts, she decided that she wanted to have sex with Kachizo one last time. So she unwrapped her prized possession and started sucking on it. But even the best fellatio performance by this seasoned professional was not getting this penis's attention at all. Yeah, I'd say that boner was pretty dead. Then she tried to penetrate herself with his member several times, but she would give up eventually, realizing that you can't do much with the flaccid penis. And when police asked about Kachizo's penis later on, Sada would say, I wanted to take the part of him that brought back to me the most vivid memories. She seems pretty sane. Oh, yeah. She's totally not off her rocker. I don't think the syphilis really got to her yet. <laughs> the police would soon close in on the crazy lady and arrest her. And they asked her then and there why she killed him. And she said, I loved him so much. I wanted him all to myself. But since we were not husband and wife, as long as he lived, he could be embraced by any other woman. I knew that if I killed him, no other woman could ever touch him again. So I killed him. Yeah, she's not sane. Syphilis got to her. 
<laughs> Sada Abe just went in there and pled guilty. And the judge took some pity on the woman, and she would be given a six-year sentence, but was released after five years. She gave interviews, wrote books, but would return to being a waitress, and did that for the next 20 years before disappearing in 1970. Man, that's dark. But I wonder what happened to Kachizo's boys. You know what I mean? That were taken at the scene of the crime? Oh yeah, man. Well, they were used as evidence in trial. <laughs> you mean each juror got to... Pass them around and hold them in their hands and give them a good squeeze, you know? Yeah. Oh, impressive. Yeah, dude. Yep. Giving a little squeeze test. And then after the trial, they were actually moved to the Tokyo University Medical School's Pathology Museum for a great art installation. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see that banana taped on the wall? That was oh, like, yeah. The, yeah. It's just like that. It's just the, the dick and balls. Oh. <laughs> just you know? taped up on the wall. Just taped up on the wall. Yeah. So then came World War II. And that display appeared to have vanished from the public. So someone out there, someone out there has Kachizo's boys. Damn, the twig and two berries. So now that we know who Sada Abe was, we can now consider the link between Matsuo Toy and Sada. And as I said earlier, Matsuo took an interest in Sada and wanted to be with her immensely. Kind of like, you know, Ricardo Lopez, he was infatuated with Bjork back in the 1990s. Oh, and sent yeah. A bomb. Yeah, he sent a bomb to her house in hopes that it would kill her. Meanwhile, he was making video diaries about his love for her. But, as is usually the case in those one-sided romances, he became very upset that Bjork was seeing someone else already. Someone that he had never personally met or knew. Some guy named Goldie. Oh, yes, Goldie, like the very famous singer. So this guy's plan was that the bomb would kill Bjork, and at the same time that it exploded, he hoped that he would be able to commit suicide at his place by a revolver to the head through the mouth. And this he would record with an old VHS camcorder. You remember those behemoths, right, Scott? Oh my gosh, yeah, they look like a giant. It's it's like you're carrying a car battery on your shoulder. Yeah, heavy, that you, just that you bulky. attached a flashlight to. <laughs> you know, that's basically what it was. Super like. primitive, man. Those things were yeah. awesome. We had when I was. They were pretty sweet. I though. loved it. Yeah, those were pretty cool. So the video, uh, the video is a really eerie scene with Bjork's song "I Remember You" playing in the background, and when it ends, Ricardo says. This is for you. And then he pulls the trigger. Oh, man, that's so dark, dude. So dark. It is, because, like, he painted his face in, like, red paint. Like, he made some, he did some weird shit. Did all this like, weird art stuff behind him. He put all these, like, poster things up that he made. That's He's just super infatuated with Bjork. Like, it's weird, bro. Crazy. But in all reality, Matsuo would be far worse. Knowing that all the women have already refused him or will inevitably refuse him, and figuring that he was as good as dead anyway with that diagnosis of TB, and not to mention all of the derision and ridicule that he felt he was getting from all of the villagers because of that diagnosis, he developed a homicidal contempt for the rest of the world for all of his bad fortune. So Matsuo started to concoct a deadly plan to exact his revenge against the world at large. It is generally thought that Matsuo had begun to collect the weapons he used in his rampage in the weeks or perhaps months before the attack. The weapons used were an axe, a katana, which is the traditional Japanese sword, a few knives, and a modified Remington M11 shotgun with some 200 rounds of ammunition for it. His plan was to kill all those people who he felt had wronged him in any way, no matter how minor it may have been. 
This, of course, included all of those women who turned away his advances and shunned him in the process. He wanted to hide in each of those women's homes and wait for them to come home so he could attack and kill them. But he realized that that plan wouldn't be very efficient for all intents and purposes. Therefore, he decided that his best course of action would be to wait until night to cut the electricity line which brought power from nearby sources into the village of Kamo, or Komocho Kurami, which again is the precise location of the killing spree, and then proceeded to walk from house to house, killing the inhabitants. But investigators would later think that Matsuo Toy had systematically chosen who he would kill and who he would let live. And that was partly due to a long suicide note that he had written and left at his house, which detailed more or less his murderous intentions and the reasoning behind them. At the same time, though, that was only a thought, and it was just as likely that he killed indiscriminately. In his suicide note, he mentioned that he didn't want to kill people that he felt were innocent people, but he also wrote about intending to kill as many people as possible. So maybe it was like, yeah, he wanted to kill as many people as possible, but at the same time, only the people that he deemed needed to be killed with whatever system he was using, you know? Yeah, that seems likely. You know, it's not uncommon for a mass murderer like this to spare people who they felt were already at a disadvantage in life, like many of the killers themselves were. So point on that really quick. More often than not, the public at large overwhelmingly believe that these killers, people like them, they have no empathy. And people tend to believe that these types of people have no empathy at all. But I think that every person has empathy. I don't think empathy is something that doesn't exist in a human being. You know, some people just express it more than others. And some try to act like they don't have it at all and do a good job at it. But generally, it's called a deficit disorder. And it's a spectrum of sorts. And I really don't think empathy can be absent in someone. It can be lacking, but not totally absent. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. So, I don't know. Email us at paranautica at gmail.com and let us know. Let me know. Let us know. Let the world know. One of the many fucked up parts to this is that Matsubo didn't really hold back his opinions about his neighbors. And in the weeks or months prior to the attack, he openly threatened many of them, who in turn reported him to the police. But the police could only do so much. And one of the things that they did do was just a few days earlier, they did revoke his gun licenses. But to what effect, really? Yeah, if you're just, oh, you no longer have a license to carry those, so go ahead and get rid of those. We're just going to take these little registration cards away. That's going to do a lot of good. Right. Why didn't they just go take the guns? The thing about it, though, is that none of his neighbors would ever expect him to carry out an attack, especially one at the level that he would carry out. At the time of the attack, the village Kamo had a population with roughly 23 households and 111 people. So on the evening of May 20th, 1938, 21-year-old Matsuo Toy, having written his lengthy suicide letter, would cut off the electricity to the village by climbing a pylon of sorts and opening the junction box where he cut the power. And then he returned to his house. There, he would arm himself with his weapons and ammunition. Again, those were a shotgun, an axe, a few knives, a katana, and 200 rounds for the shotgun. In a part of his suicide note, he wrote that it would be necessary for him to kill his grandmother, the woman who lovingly raised him after both of his parents died of TB when he was just a baby. He said he needed to kill her to spare her the shame of having been the one who raised the person who carried out the unthinkable carnage that he was planning to commit. And so, having armed himself, he went to the sleeping grandmother's room and decapitated her with the axe. She would be victim number one and would begin the mayhem roughly around 1.30 a.m. on May 21st. 1938. 
He also attached two flashlights to his head, one on either side. And then he walked from house to house, killing those who lived there by either shooting them with a shotgun, slicing at them with the katana, chopping at them with the axe, or stabbing them with one of the several knives he had. Matsuo would slowly move along, keeping his ears alert for anyone awake or nearby as he would approach the next house. He would quietly make his way inside, careful not to wake whoever was sleeping. And a side note here too, on the type of the bedding that was typically used in Japan in the 1930s, it was, you know, especially for the average lower class people, they'd often sleep on little mats woven from various organic materials such as cotton or bamboo or on what's called futons, but not quite like the cheap Walmart folding futons you see today. These were much better. And so these mats would simply be placed on the floor and people would sleep there. The point I'm making here is that, to me, it seems like the victims were especially vulnerable by having that sleeping arrangement. You know what I mean? To just be laid out directly on the floor. To me, it makes me feel vulnerable rather than being on on a raised bed. Yeah, I guess if push came to shove and there were guns and knives and whatnot involved, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But I'd still feel like, oh, fuck, like I'm already on the... At least I guess you could try to hop off a bed. But if you're on the floor, you're fucked. Yeah, because all that time and effort to like get up, get up off the floor. Good luck. You're just going to get smoked like a fucking Paul Mall with no filter. And I've seen some of the photos, which are old and fairly small, and some of the victims are either laying on the floor on these mats or on slightly raised solid wood beds. Um, and there also weren't a lot of blankets. And that makes you feel all the more vulnerable, in my opinion. What do you think, Scott? Do you need a blanket of some kind or even just a sheet when you sleep to be covered with something? Does that make you feel comfortable? Um, I have fallen asleep quite a few times on the couch being covered with nothing. I guess it depends on what time of the year it is. Because if it's summer and I'm too hot, there better not be a thing touching me, bro. Um, See, like, I have to have something. If it's too hot, I'll just use, like, a sheet. But for me, like, I have to have something covering me for some reason. I think I can have, I can be partially covered. Like, just my legs. And then I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, just the feet. You know, plus, all right, so it's also the morning hours around 2 a.m. when people are at their most vulnerable asleep. And there's not a lot of information about either this case or Matsuo Toy. Nothing much other than the bare bones. I was able to find one or two very old Japanese articles about it back in the day, but I can't read Japanese. No, but you can speak it, though. No, 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 no. I wish. Damn, I wish, but no. Well, you said you can't read Japanese. Yeah, right. I can't. Well, were you implying that you could speak it then? No, man, I wasn't implying... Oh, Braille, you can read Japanese Braille. That's gotta be difficult, bro, all those characters and all that kanji. No, dude, no. I wasn't implying that I could read, write, or speak Japanese at all. Oh, well, shit, my bad. Anyway, I couldn't find any sort of timeline or who was killed with what weapon, or in any sequence, you know, which house he went to first and this and that. Or what happened between when he fled the area or when he was found in the mountainside. But all we have is that for over the next 90 minutes, from when he decapitated his grandmother, he would kill 30 people by either shooting them with a shotgun, chopping them with an axe, stabbing and slicing them with the katana, or stabbing them with the knives. And 28 were killed instantly, while another two who were injured would die later. After his brutal attack, he fled into the mountains where he hid out for a while. And at dawn, as the sun was rising, and as the police were approaching, he, he pointed the shotgun at his own chest and pulled the trigger. This injury would prove fatal, and he would be the final statistic. And I read everywhere that Matsuo had murdered about half the village, but that's exaggerated. The census showed that there were 111 people living there. 31 people would die at his hand. That leaves 80 people. 
That's not even approximately half. So yeah, that was Matsuo Toy. Okay. So to sum this up here, he and his sister lost both of their parents, I'm just going to do a recap, to tuberculosis when he was just a baby. A grandmother then steps in, right, and she raises the two children for the next 20 years in which they would develop a very strong, presumably trauma bond together. I think I got that right. Yep. Matsuo would begin to practice yobai, which is the art of sneaking into a woman's bedroom with the intention of having consensual sex. This would grow into kind of an addiction with him that only got worse and worse and worse. But then Matsuo's sister would find a husband and the two would marry and move away from the village, leaving him alone and with only his lonely devices and addictions. So Matsuo took up a fascination with Sada Abe, who cut her lover's cock and balls off after she strangled him to death. Then she gobbled on the extricated genitals for a while, like, uh, you know, like a hamster on its wheel. And then tried to fuck herself with it, which didn't work. And she frustratingly gave up and pretty much gave herself up after that. Ah, I can't stick out this very uh, flaccid penis that I cut off from his body into my vajayjay. So depressing. Yeah, fucking terrible. So this devastates Matsuo, who only increased his practice of yobai, but much more creepily after that. And then... After he was stricken with the diagnosis of TB, a disease of seeing being seen as like some kind of plague at that time, not one woman wanted to be around him. So this made the darkness in him ten times worse, became sort of an event horizon, and at that point there was no turning back. So he plotted to kill as many people as he could, armed himself before systematically taking people's lives from them as they slept, destroying many lives in the wake of the madness. So 30 people would be murdered in total. Their ages ranged from 5 years old to 86 years old. And this rampage would last for 90 minutes, at which point he shot himself in the chest with a shotgun, bringing the total death toll to 31, including himself. And I wonder, like, I can't imagine many of those households had a firearm of their own, you know, considering the cultural views on weapons in general and the gun control they had in place at the time, which was, well, it wasn't great. Yeah, I'm sure at the time nobody ever expected anything like that would happen. So no, just you just wouldn't be prepared for it. Yeah. And in 1983, a Japanese film was made based on the attack, and it is called Ushumitsu no Mura, or Village of Doom. The star of the movie was a man named Masato Furuoya, who plays an emotionally damaged young man who gets TB and can't serve in World War II. And as a result, he goes on a murderous rampage. Masato was an established actor with many credits. But 20 years later, after that film's release, on March 25, 2003, Masato Furuoya would commit suicide by hanging at 45 years old. Wow, so dark. But that... Ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Matsuo Toy and what is known as the Tsuyama Massacre. There it is, guys. I know it's a heavy one, but these things happen, and it's our job to let people know and to bring them back up and just rehash them, you know, so that these are never too far from our collective conscious. Absolutely, man. Sada Abe, what a character. Yeah, seriously, she was twisted. She was kooky. Kooky. I mean, she killed the dude, cut off his cock and balls, did all sorts of weird stuff with it, and she only served five years in prison and was released. And then she was... I know they let her out after... <laughs> That's so and crazy she was to like, me, bro. Famous for it. She was writing books about yeah, it. Yeah, she became a sensation yeah, on you know, all the like, People were like, dude, gotta talk to this lady. Yeah, man. Like, and then she would get married, you know? She'd go on to get married to other another guy. It's like, Wild. Ugh. Wild. How wanna... could you... 
Yes, knowing. How could you? Like Lorraine Bobbitt. Did she ever get remarried? She probably did. Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. But all right, yeah, I'll take the risk. Yeah, you don't have any. You don't have a knife on you, do you? Okay. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please don't forget to subscribe to the Paranautica podcast and also like and share us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Yep, yep. And email us. Let us know the stories you'd like to hear us cover. Oh, and please go over to Twitter and follow us over there as well. That's at Paranautica. You can also check out our Facebook page. Maybe buy us a coffee and go hit up our Reddit page as well. Wayne Dale is reportedly all over that. I'm sure he hasn't suffered any dereliction of his duties. So don't forget to tell him to eat a dick if you see him. Please tell him to eat a dick. And also, come back next week for a new show. But until then... See that? I'm cool.